Sub Traders Fly family. How are we? Good to see you. I want to welcome everybody gathered across all of our locations and those of you tuning in online. We're so glad to have you. And it's hard to believe that today we are wrapping up this series that we've been in for nearly two months now, hard to believe, uh, in the book of Daniel. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and find Daniel chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. And as you're kind of turning there and getting settled for the message, uh, I just want to remind everybody uh, what kind of a church uh, you walked into today. Uh, we are really, really passionate about three primary groups of people, uh, men, women, and the next generation. And so it's with that in mind that I want to celebrate something and then I want to forecast something before we jump in. The first thing I want to celebrate is last night at our downtown campus, we had youth night. And uh, anybody uh, join youth night uh, last night in the room? Yeah, a handful, handful of people. And so uh, we uh, packed the place out downtown and uh, just hundreds and hundreds of students just in the next generation came together to uh, worship, encourage each other, and uh, to figure out what their next steps are as they follow Jesus. And so I just want to thank everybody that made that possible. And, uh, you know, we are, we want to come alongside the next generation because there are so many things about growing up in the world that we grow up in now that are so challenging. And yet at the same time, I'm so encouraged when I see the faith and the resolve of the next gen. And so um, uh, if you are a parent of a student, uh, mark it on your calendars. November 12th is the next one. We'd love to see them there. And then uh, I just want to uh, forecast something coming up. Uh, fellas, men's night is coming up Friday night, October the 28th. Uh, it's going to be from 5 to 11 p.m. And uh, it has been, it's hard to believe, it's been since 2016 since we did the last one of these. And uh, so uh, we're bringing this thing back. And I sat in a uh, planning meeting on Thursday just with the team to kind of get an update on where everything's at. And I was blown away at the things we've got prepared for that night. So guys, registration is open. Sign up right away. This would be a great event for you to invite uh, your friend, your neighbor, your fishing buddy, the guy who you've been inviting to church but will never come. Invite him to this. All right. And uh, Leonce Crump is going to be here. He is a friend of mine who uh, used to play in the NFL and now he's a pastor, which is like just the best kind. And uh, Leonce is as big as a truck, all right? And uh, he's gonna be here. And uh, so uh, this would be a, a great event uh, to invite a friend to. Uh, and then ladies, we've not forgotten about you because in February, we're gonna bring uh, Women's Night back as well. So that's coming as well. So hey, I just want, hey, we can give it up for that. So I just want you to know uh, your uh, generosity, like ongoing generosity, not only does it help us pivot to meet immediate needs, it helps us to care for men, women, and the next generation. So I just want to thank you guys for that. Well, uh, several, several years ago, I was uh, reading a book by an author by the name of Mark Buchanan, and he wrote this book on Sabbath called The Rest of God. And in it, he tells the story of his wife's grandmother who grew up in Canada during the Canadian gold rush. And she had this um, large boulder in her backyard that was too big for her to move. And so she just decided to clean it up, kind of polish it up a little bit, maybe make it look like a nice little centerpiece for her garden. And so she gets this like, uh, you know, polishing kind of uh, rock paper stuff to kind of sand it all out. And she's uh, kind of scrubbing away on it. And she noticed that there were a few gold flakes that began to appear on the surface of the boulder. Now, this was during the Canadian gold rush. So she immediately begins to wonder if she's got like this huge chunk of gold sitting in her backyard. And so she starts scrubbing faster and faster and faster and more gold flakes begin to appear on the surface of this boulder. And she's already imagining how she's gonna spend the money. And then she stops to take a break and to kind of wipe the sweat from her brow. And that's when she noticed that her wedding band was very, very loose. 
And she looked at the top, looked totally fine, looked at the underside, and she had been sanding away her wedding band, hadn't struck gold at all, and it was worn down razor thin. And in that book, he said, oftentimes, this is what can happen when we begin to uh, chase after and pursue the things that we think are truly important and can sustain us. And we end up sacrificing the things that are truly valuable, like they're literally slipping through our fingers. And as we wrap up this study in the book of Daniel, one of the things that I just want to point out is that all throughout Daniel's life, Daniel has been able to keep his eyes fixed on that which is truly important, valuable, and the thing that will sustain him in the midst of radically changing circumstances, both in culture and in his personal life. Now, if you're just now joining us for this series, we are, you know, the, the, the bad news is, is that, you know, you're jumping in right on the very last installment. Uh, the good news is next week, we begin a brand new series in the book of First Peter. All right, so come back for that. Actually, First uh, Peter is gonna be a great follow-up to Daniel because it covers a lot of the similar themes that we find in Daniel, just from a New Testament perspective. But just by way of review, especially for those of us, maybe since you've, you know, maybe slept since the last time you kind of listened to one of these messages, is that Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they grew up in a, in their hometown was a place called Jerusalem. And when they were teenage boys, um, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon attacked Jerusalem and besieged them, which meant that he took Daniel and his friends, kidnapped them, enslaved them, took them back to Babylon. Uh, once they get there, they are put into this three-year training program designed to put distance between them and God. And the big idea was that once they graduate with a master's degree in paganism, they would look, think, act, and talk more like Babylon than Jerusalem. That they would begin to reflect more and more the kingdom of men rather than the kingdom of God. And it's just a really, really good reminder that that training program is still alive and well today. And that you and I, we are being shaped more and more into the image and likeness of something or someone. The question is, is who is it? Well, Daniel and his friends, this indoctrination program failed miserably. And they didn't fight Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and they didn't run and isolate themselves from Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Instead, they took those words that Jeremiah the prophet wrote in chapter 29 seriously, where he said, stay in exile. And you just stop and think, man, those three words don't make any sense. Why in the world would I choose to stay in exile? And then he goes, hey, this is where God has sent you. So God has sent them into exile. And then he says, pray for the peace and prosperity of the city. And that's exactly what Daniel and his friends did. And they just jump right in and they start serving for the good of Babylon and they get jobs and they get promotions within Nebuchadnezzar's administration which, by the way, could have easily been seen as treason by those from their hometown. And Daniel just really walks this fine line, showing all of us how to live for God within a very godless culture. Daniel was not a prophet, a priest, uh, or a pastor. He just worked in the marketplace, and he was able to live for God in a way that was winsome and attractive to others without compromising anything that he believed. And it's important as we kind of wrap up chapter nine today 
just to remind ourselves why they found themselves in this mess to begin with. Like, how did Jerusalem end up as exiles in Babylon to begin with? And there was really two reasons. We covered this the first couple of weeks of this series. The first was simply this, the continual disobedience of God's people in Jerusalem. And God had warned them over and over and over again. He's like, hey, unless you turn back to me, then I'm gonna allow you, I'm gonna send you into exile. And eventually in 605 BC, that's exactly what he did. Now, with that said, I think it's important for me to uh, stress and double stress the fact that for us today, that there is no sin in your life or mine that is too big for God not to be able to cover by his grace. It doesn't, you cannot out sin God's grace. However, unrepentant sin, and what that just simply means is I'm gonna refuse to acknowledge it. I'm gonna refuse to drag it out into the open. I'm gonna refuse to come clean of it. Unrepentant sin always leads people into exile. The second reason is that, this is something we often overlook, is that God loved Babylon, even though Babylon didn't love or acknowledge God that God loved Nebuchadnezzar and wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know him. And God loved Belshazzar and God loved the people of Babylon. And he didn't just sit back and wait for them to figure that out on their own. He sent Daniel and his friends as exiles into that land so that way people could see it and hear it and feel it from a live human being. And this just brings up the, the, the reality that is true for so many of us is that if we were to sit down together over a cup of coffee and I were to say, hey man, like, tell me about your life. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, tell me how that happened. Tell me how that began to, uh, just your uh, experience of transformation. And chances are you would mention the name or the names of people that God had brought into your life and he had used in big, big ways. Because God always uses people to change people. And I'm so grateful for that. And this is one of the reasons why Daniel is just like a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. The book of Daniel may have Daniel's name slapped on it, but it's not really about Daniel. It is about Jesus. And God would send Jesus as an exile of sorts into our world because he would want us to know of his love and his grace. Well, the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are populated with like all the really great stories that if you grew up in church, you remember hearing in Sunday school and vacation Bible school, you know, fiery furnaces and lion's den. All right. And then the last six chapters are all the, you know, kind of weird stuff. You know, it's like the apocalyptic literature. It's all the prophecy. And by the way, I know Ryan covered chapter seven and eight over the last couple of weeks, and that's just the way that it worked out. All right. I mean, I, I wasn't intentionally trying to get, I'm, I'm not afraid to teach those passages. All right. Maybe a little bit, but, uh, but no, but Ryan did a, did a great, great job with all that. But here's how I'd explain it to you today. Uh, the first six chapters of Daniel describe what was going on around Daniel like the cultural change and the personal circumstances, the world events that he kind of went through. Chapters seven through 12, all the prophecy stuff, it is telling us what was going on inside of Daniel as he's living through it. And what it does is it gives us a glimpse of his fears, his anxieties and his, and his concerns. And it actually shows us that Daniel was a human being after all. And so over the past couple of weeks, if you've been tracking with us in chapter seven and eight, we saw that 
Daniel had clearly been eating way too many late night microwave burritos. And so he was having these like really, really crazy psychedelic dreams. Here's the amazing thing about it. Like he could interpret other people's dreams, but he couldn't interpret his own. And so uh, God sent Gabriel to come and help Daniel interpret his own dreams. And it, as we come to the conclusion of chapter eight, Daniel is having some sleepless nights. He is absolutely wrecked over two things. The condition of his exiled home, Babylon, as well as the condition of his real home, Jerusalem. And what Daniel is doing in chapter nine is he's reflecting back on the decades that he has spent in exile. Now think about this. Uh, think about what you were doing when you were 13. Right. So when Daniel was 13, that's when he gets kidnapped and taken to Babylon. Now he is an old man in his 80s and 90s. And he's thinking, I've spent my whole life as an exile. And he's and he's sort of reflecting back. And, and it's not as if he is resentful of it. That's the amazing thing about it. As I was reading this this last week, there's this old movie that popped into my mind. I don't know how many of you have seen it with Richard Dreyfuss called Mr. Holland's Opus. Any of you remember that movie? And in that movie, Mr. Holland is like, he has these like dreams of becoming like this uh, world renowned composer of music. And uh, instead, due to life circumstances, he had to take a job at a local high school as a band teacher. And he's like sort of resentful over this and he's bitter over it. And he's just thinking, this is just gonna be for a semester. And a semester turns into a year, you know? And then a year turns into five and five turns into a decade. And he sees students come and go. And this whole time he's like growing disillusioned and he's seeing this dream of becoming a composer slip out of his fingers until the day finally comes whenever it's time for him to retire. And all of his students and his former students gather together in this auditorium. And that's when he realizes that they had become his opus. He had, had these dreams of going and creating all this like uh, popularity and fame and wealth for himself on his music, when in reality, he was exiled of sorts, impacting all of the lives of these people. And in a very similar sense, I think that's kind of the setting as we come to chapter nine. Daniel has been in exile for nearly 70 years and he's doing some reflecting. And I want to pick this up in verse two of chapter nine. So follow along with me. Daniel says, it says, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. I also wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes. One of the first things I just want to point out about the verses that we just read is that Daniel is an old man, but he is not done learning and growing. And I love that about him. It says that he still got his Bible open and he's taking notes because he knew what maybe you and I need to be reminded of today, that we might retire from a career or a job one day, but you never retire from following after God. That all of life is this lifelong process of continuing to grow. And I love it. Like every time I, I get around maybe some older seasoned people and they say, you know what, man, I just really felt like my spiritual life didn't take off till I got north of 70. You know, I'm like, really? You know, it's like, because it just shows us that there's always more and more for us to learn and grow and contribute. And Daniel's got his Bible open. He's been reading this his whole life and there's still more to mine out of it. And he has spent the majority of his life reading the prophet Jeremiah. And one of the things that Jeremiah stressed over and over again is that um, Jerusalem would be in exile for 70 years. 
Now, Daniel was taken into captivity in 605 BC. Chapter 9 begins in verse 1 by saying the first year of Darius, which we know was 538 BC. So math has never really been my thing, but that's roughly 70 years. And Daniel's realizing this. Daniel is recognizing the time of exile is almost over, according to the prophet Jeremiah. Now, I've got a question for you. If you were in Daniel's sandals, wouldn't you be excited about that? Man, I would. I would be like, all right, man, I'm getting my bags packed. And I know the first thing that I'm going to do when I land at Jerusalem International Airport, I'm going to jump on that Uber camel. And I'm going to go straight to In-N-Out Burger. I'm going to get a double-double, you know, animal style with a chocolate shake. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm sure that he was like calling friends and family like, hey, you know, we got to hook up. We got to catch up again. But Daniel doesn't seem to be excited. In fact, it says that he covered himself with burlap and sprinkled himself with ashes. This is, this is the idea of somebody that's in mourning. And so what, what was it about Daniel that was causing him to mourn? I think that what's on Daniel's mind here, I, th I think maybe a couple of things. I think Daniel had truly grown to love the people of Babylon and he, and he wanted them to know God so desperately. I also think the other reason why is because Daniel is thinking simply this, has 70 years of exile been enough? Which is a wild question. It's this idea of, has this been enough to soften our hardened hearts? Are we ready to be free? Are we prepared to go back and live for God? And it kind of reminds me over the past, like what we've been through over the past two or three years with the pandemic. And I remember hearing lots of people talking about this to the point that I just got nauseous every time I heard the term, maybe you did as well, when people say things like new normal or when are things gonna go back to normal? And then we begin to like talk like, well, what is normal anyway? And, and is that the kind of normal that we wanna go back to? And, and, uh, and just think like, you know, it would be horrible to kind of waste this crisis just to snap back and go back to the way we were living before. And honestly, right now, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's truly marked us, if it's truly changed us, if it's brought us closer to God or not. But I think it's a very similar sentiment of Daniel saying, man, are we ready to go back to normal? Have our hearts really been impacted? Have we really grown closer to God? That's the sentiment that Daniel is getting at in chapter nine. And in verse four, he goes on and he says, I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed, O Lord, you are a great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. Keep in mind, this is coming from a guy who's been in exile 70 years, saying that to God. But verse five, but we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes and ancestors and all the people of the land. I just wanna point out in Daniel's prayer, Notice this, how many times he says the word we. He's including himself in it. Now, keep in mind, remember who Daniel is. Daniel is a guy that was above reproach. He had no accusations. He had no scandals. The dude lived a stellar life. His enemies could not find any dirt on him. And yet here in this prayer, he's including himself in it. He's like, God, we have sinned against you. Have you ever noticed that uh, the only time that we uh, do that is when we are associating ourselves with groups of people that make us look good too? 
so here's an example. I am so grateful that fall is in the air and football is back. Can I get a good amen? All right, yeah, man, it's like all is right in the world. As long as the leaves are changing, it's crisp outside and football is on, right? So, um, but have you ever noticed that when our team is winning, it's we, right? Like, do you remember when the Colts used to win? Like, remember, remember way back when that happened, right? And we would say things like, man, we won today. And you're like, really, we? I didn't see you on the field. Like, I've never worn a jersey. I've never made a tackle. I've never caught a, come to think of it, I can't remember the last time my heart rate got over 100. But we won today. But then when we're losing, it's not we, what is it? They. They don't know what they're doing. They can't call a play. They need to get their act together, right? So that's what's happening. Well, here in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says we throughout this whole prayer. And by the way, it's a losing team. Look at verse 7. Lord, you are in the right, but as you see, our faces are covered with shame. This is true of all of us, including the people of Judah and Jerusalem and all Israel. In other words, he's not just talking about Babylon. All of us who are exiled, scattered near and far, wherever you have driven us because of our disloyalty to you. Oh, Lord, we and our kings, princes and ancestors are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. But I love verse nine. But the Lord, our God, is merciful and forgiving. Aren't you glad that statement is there? Man, I am. Uh, we have all sinned against you, but God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord, our God, for we have not followed the instructions he gave us through his servants, the prophets. So he's saying, hey, like um, Babylon has sinned against God. We all know that. They are a pagan nation. But here's what Daniel's doing. He's going, but, but so is Jerusalem. So is God's own people. What he's saying is, is that the sin and rebellion that is found in God's house with God's people needs to be dealt with first before he'll deal with the decadent sins of Babylon. This is just a great reminder, especially within this really divided culture in which we now live, that uh, he is showing us this is not an us versus them kind of a thing. It's not us pointing fingers at somebody else, somebody who thinks different, lives different, votes different than you and saying, yeah, God, you know, they need to get their act together. He's saying, no, we're all in the same boat here. There is no good guys and bad guys. There is, we're all bad guys. There's only one saving good guy and his name is Jesus Christ. And Daniel is saying, hey, listen, God's not looking at us going, man, look, look at them. Like, like right now, God's not looking down on us right now going, man, look at, look at that group gathered at Trader's Point. Man, I'm so proud of them. You know, I saw them all raising their hands a little bit earlier. And man, they're serving. And, you know, they're laughing at Aaron's jokes, even when they're not funny and, you know, making him feel good. And man, I'm just so proud of them. Like, look, look at where they, where they could be, you know, right now, all the other places they could be in the world, but they're, but they're in church right now. And then he's not looking at what's happening in Vegas right now with a gag reflex. You know, like, I can't believe what's happening in that hotel room, that casino floor, that back alley. I wish they could be more like the good people of Trader's Point. No, this is not an us versus them kind of a thing. In fact, this is a reminder that before we pick up binoculars to look at the sins of other people, we would look in a mirror and just simply say, God, is there anything in me? God, is there anything in me that maybe I'm not seeing that needs to be brought to the surface? You know that old phrase, maybe you heard if you ever grew up in church, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, hate the sin and love the sinner. And aside from that not being found in the Bible anywhere, 
It's very condescending. We shouldn't hate the sin and love the sinner. We should love the sinner and hate our own sin. And just say, God, is there anything in me that I need to come clean with? And we know that Daniel has lived an exceptional life. I can't think of anything that, Dan, any like area of disobedience. Now we know that Daniel was a human being. So we know that he had sin in his life. But what Daniel is doing here is he is really ratcheting it up at a level. And Daniel is sort of owning sins he is not explicitly guilty of. And once again, he is foreshadowing Jesus Christ who did the same for you and for me. Daniel didn't make any excuse for it. Daniel didn't try to get out of it. Daniel's like, no, God, we've all sinned against you. How many of you have ever been accused of doing something that you were innocent of? Doesn't it just make you feel great? It, what's, your, what's your automatic response? Well, to defend and to explain, at least it is for me. I remember when I was in the fifth grade, um, my teacher was a uh, lovely woman named Mrs. Jones, who uh, actually, if you notice the facetiousness in my vo voice, um, we didn't care for her very much. Now, I, this is a little bit of a risk because I don't know if Mrs. Jones is watching right now. And so I'll just say that uh, I think the statute of limitations covers me on this. And Mrs. Jones, if you're watching, love you, but, <laughs> but not so much then. All right. So, so I just remember like our class, like we didn't really care for her very much. She was kind of grumpy. And I remember uh, one, one afternoon she left uh, the classroom to go make a copy or do something. And uh, one of the girls in our, our class said, hey guys, when Mrs. Jones walks back in, let's all just break out into laughter. You know, fifth graders aren't really known for their reasoning abilities. And I remember like everybody was like, oh yeah, you know, that'd be great. That'd be great. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, like, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand why this would be funny. Now, uh, I'm not saying that to say that I was like being a goody two-shoes. <laughs> I'm just not the brightest bulb in the shelf, all right? So I, like, I was like, why is this? I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. And so I was very, very confused. It all happened very, very fast. Mrs. Jones walks back into the classroom. Sure enough, everybody in the room breaks out into laughter. Uh, I just kind of sat there with a big dumb grin on my face. Like I didn't laugh. I was just kind of like, this is very confusing. I don't understand what's happening here. But Mrs. Jones thought the entire class laughed. And she responded about like how you thought that she would. Like she was very upset. It was very disrespectful. And so she told all of us that we were going to stay after class that day. And all of us were going to write 100 times on the chalkboard. I will not laugh at Mrs. Jones when she walks into the room because that is very disrespectful. And as I was up at the board writing that out, I wrote, I will not laugh at Mrs. Jones while she walks into the room because that is very disrespectful. And under my breath 100 times, I said, but I didn't do it. And I remember like pleading my case with her, telling her I did, and it did not matter because as far as she was concerned, the whole class was guilty. And Daniel could have done something very similar in his prayer. It could have been like, hey God, you know, Babylon, all their decadent sins, they need to come clean. They need to repent to you and God, all the people of Jerusalem. But, but me, on the other hand, God, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not guilty of the same things. Just imagine how that conversation could have gone down. God could have said to Daniel, Daniel, my people have deeply disappointed me with their sin. And Daniel could have responded with, I know, right? And I was kind of thinking about this when I was being faithful to you in the lion's den. I mean, God, do you remember that? And uh, I hate to bring that up, but you know, I did put my life on the line. You know, it's like, but Daniel didn't do any of that. Daniel steps right in and he 
claims responsibility for sins he's not explicitly guilty of. And it just teaches us this thing. Daniel is a leader and so are you, regardless of your age, your season of life, your gender, your occupation. If you're influencing anybody in your life right now, you're a leader. And remember, this is what Daniel teaches us. Leaders worth following accept responsibility for problems that are not always their fault. And in this culture of finger blaming and, and blame shifting, that's pretty rare. And Daniel says, hey, man, we're in this together. And once again, this, in a sense, is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And if you aren't clear on what the gospel message is, the gospel message is that God created you and loved you. And sin came in and severed that relationship with God. There was no way that you could pay off your debt. You, are, you and I are not getting to heaven by our own merits. It is impossible and God knows it. So he sent Jesus to live the life that you and I could never live, to die the death that we deserve to die, to walk into a, a, a grave and to conquer death on our behalf so that now when God saw Jesus on a cross, he saw your sin and your shame and he nailed it there. And now when God sees you today, he, see, he doesn't see your merits. He doesn't see your sin. If your life is hidden in Christ, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and says it's paid in full. And so in, in verse 20, Daniel goes on and he says, I went on praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. As I was praying, Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he explained to me, Daniel, I've come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment you began praying, a command was given. And now I am here to tell you what it was. And I want you to notice this very last part. He says, for you are very precious to God. Some translations say greatly loved by God. Uh, others say uh, treasured by God. But that's kind of the idea. And this is such an incredible thought. It's amazing, really, when you think about it. Just stop and think about uh, the fact of what Daniel has been through up to this point in his life. Things have not gone Daniel's way. Let's just say that. Daniel was kidnapped. He was enslaved. He was castrated. He had been set up and betrayed by co-workers and rivals. His life has been no walk in the park. And here Gabriel comes and says to him, Daniel, you are greatly valued. You are greatly treasured. You are greatly loved by God, which begs the question that I wrote out in my notes this last week. It was like, man, I'd hate to see what God does to his enemies. Because Daniel's life hasn't been easy at all. He's been in exile his whole life. And now Gabriel says, you're greatly loved of God. And what would convince Daniel of that? I think that many times what, what ends up happening, I know this is true for me in my life, is that I end up equating God's love for me with life's ease. And so the more that things go my way, then I think, okay, well, you know, God is just showing his love for me. But that isn't always the case, even for Daniel. You see, going through challenging seasons, which we all will, and maybe you're in one right now, that does not mean that God has abandoned you or forgotten you. In fact, it just might mean the exact opposite, that he's right there with you in it. You remember the fiery furnace when we walked through all that passage a few weeks ago? That God could have extinguished the flames. He could have brought them out. But instead, his way of saving is to be in it with us. And that's what the very name of Jesus means, God with 
us. And I don't mean to explain away life's challenges and difficulties too easily. They're, life's hard. There are no easy answers. But one of the answers is that God right now wants to refine you and me, that he's more concerned about your character and the type of person that you are becoming than just giving you and me our way all the time. What God will oftentimes do is he will knock away the uh, support structures of everything we're leaning our life up against. So that way we are left with no choice but to be completely dependent upon him. And in Daniel chapter nine, in this great prayer, Daniel is essentially crying out what we just sang a few moments ago. God, we need you. And this right here is the key to understanding the consistency and the power of Daniel's prayer life. So I don't know about you guys, I'll just get real confessional with you, is that my personal prayer life has been something that I've struggled with like my whole Christian life. Like my prayer life has been filled with more stops and starts, more ups and downs and inconsistencies than I would care to admit or care to count. And some of you that might kind of surprise you because you're like, well, you're a pastor. Like, don't you pray like all the time? Like, isn't that like, like what you do for fun? And it's like, well, I'd like to tell you that, but uh, no. And th there have been lots of times whenever I, I, I back up and I get a running start at this. And it's like, I know I need to spend more time in prayer and maybe it's like the beginning of a year, maybe the beginning of a new season. And I'll get all fired up. Like that's just kind of like what I do is like, I'll try to fire myself up. And so I'll read some quotes on prayer. You know, it's like Martin Luther King one time said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And I'm like, oh man, that fires me up. You know, and, then I'll, and I'll read like Martin Luther. Martin Luther said one time, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours a day in prayer. And I'm like, he has so much to do. He's going to spend the first three hours. Give, give me that tattoo, right? It's like, I'm going to, you know, and it's like, I get all fired up. And then like, I jump in and then my mind starts drifting three minutes into the prayer. And I'm just like, man, what's my problem? And oftentimes I've thought or I've assumed that my failure to pray it's just a lack of self-discipline or spiritual maturity. <laughs> and knowing me, that's probably true, but, but not really the real reason why my prayer life goes stale. And I'm just wondering if any of you can relate to me, then a lack of prayer in your life is not necessarily a lack of self-discipline or devotion, but it is a failure to truly grasp how God really sees you how truly patient he is with you, how compassionate and tender he is with you, that he wants to hear from you. See, I, for the longest of times, I would, I would have always just assumed, you know what, you know, God loves me because, you know, that's just kind of his job to love me, but he doesn't like me because I keep going back on my word and I keep telling him I'm going to do the thing that I'm going to do and then I don't do it. And I don't think he cares for me very much. And so therefore, I'll avoid him. And the way that God sees you is he has this tremendous compassion for you. Just like what Gabriel says to Daniel, you are greatly loved by God. Daniel could have assumed God has exiled me in Babylon for 70 years. He must not care. And Gabriel says, oh, no, Daniel. See, I want you to remember this. This is today's sermon in a sentence. 
prayer is not the way we get God to love us. It is the result of knowing how much he does. And when you begin to realize how much God really loves you, prayer is not this thing that you feel obligated to do. Prayer is this thing that you're always doing because you want to talk to your heavenly father. Well, I want to finish up verses 24 and 25. And this is where it gets a little tricky, uh, but it's not as tricky as what we might make it out to be. So hold on. Verse 24, it says this, a period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision and to anoint the most holy place. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, that's capitalized, which means what? It's talking about Jesus, all right? Once again, you're like, I'm not sure, but Jesus, right? <laughs> yes, it's referring to Jesus until Jesus comes, all right? So that's a mouthful, very confusing. What is Gabriel saying, right? God's plan of rescue and restoration, he's saying, well, so, so keep in mind, Babylon, uh, Jerusalem, Daniel's been in exile, and he's saying, hey, Daniel, God's plan of rescue God's plan to restore Jerusalem will take place over 70 sevens or 70 sets of sevens. Now, some of you are like, great, clear as mud. What does that mean? I studied this passage just last week and I read what every preacher wants to hear from the commentaries. Commentary after commentary said this. This is one of the most difficult passages in Daniel. Very controversial, this one. And I thought, oh, goody, I can't wait for Sunday. It's actually not as complicated as what we think. See, we have a tendency, Ryan did such a great job walking us through this over the past couple of weeks when it comes to apocalyptic literature. We have a tendency to read things like this and think that, well, there's some sort of secret message that just has to be decoded. And we just need to crack this mysterious code uh, in the Bible. And then that ends up distracting us from the clarity and the simplicity of the gospel. Listen, the Bible was never meant to be decoded. It is meant to reveal a savior. And there have been multiple attempts by really, really good scholars to try and interpret the 77s. And there's a lot of different like viable options, but I love what Brian Chapel says about this. I just want to read what he says. He says, when it comes to the 77s, it is as though God is saying that the plan of his rescue is immeasurably greater than the trials of the captivity. Man, what a great sentence that God's plan of rescue is immeasurably greater than the trials of the captivity. So God's plan of rescue, which by the way, would be the gospel message. And now he's not just talking about Daniel in Jerusalem. He's talking about us today is immeasurably greater than the trials of our captivity. And the way that we interpret the 77s or 70 sets of sevens is just basically God saying, this is a infinite number of perfection. I'm gonna come and infinitely perfect that which you've been through. It's very similar to whenever Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 18, how many times should I forgive Jesus? And he thinks that he's like really buttering Jesus up. And he's like, seven times? And Jesus is like, no, 70 times seven. It's the same type of sentiment. And God is saying to Daniel, and he's saying to you and me today in our exile, have you spent, how much time have you spent in captivity? I'm going to rescue you. And my rescue is going to be like 70 times seven, meaning that God's rescue and his redemption and his restoration 
is going to eclipse whatever it is that you're going through. And so I just want to wrap up with this question. What are you going through? What is captivity for you? And maybe right now your captivity is uh, maybe a marriage that's hanging on by a thread. Maybe your captivity is overwhelming anxiety that you just can't get a handle on. Maybe your captivity is going toe to toe with an addiction that is getting the better of you every time. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's some sort of relational conflict. What is captivity for you? And can I just ask, are your eyes in the right place? Are you like sanding away the wedding ring, so to speak? Are you chasing after that which you think can really sustain, provide, or are you resting in the grace of your heavenly father? And right now, I just wanna do what the book of Daniel is designed to do, draw our eyes to the only one who can change anyone. And in these final moments together, I just simply wanna place before you the question, so what have you done with Jesus? Have you drifted from him? Have you ignored him? Have you responded to him? And today, I just wanna give you an opportunity to just lay claim of that which Jesus died for you to have. And that God's plan of rescue, God's plan of restoration, God's plan of redemption, no matter how hard life gets, how unfair it is, how, how much pain you have to walk through is gonna be so much infinitely greater. And right now he promises to be with you in it. And that's a promise that you can claim right now today. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God that is just and fair, but you're also a God who's merciful and gracious. And if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't stand a chance. And so God, here we are, exiles in 2022. And so we confess our sins before you we ask that you would examine our hearts in these final moments that we're gonna to be together today. Search us, show us what we need to repent of, to turn from. And God, I just ask that if there's anybody here today that is uncertain about where they stand with you, their relationship with you, that they would not leave uncertain, but that they would respond to that grace that you've made available through Jesus Christ. God, thank you so much for the message and the example that Daniel is for us today, that when we are among lions, we continue to look to you to sustain us and to restore us. And so God, in these final moments together, would you just meet us right where we're sitting today? And would you speak? We ask this in your name, amen.